read now from the sermon text in Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it. Under the molding on both its sides, you shall place him on its two sides, and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. This is what every one among those who are numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is twenty geras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from twenty years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a lever of bronze with it, with its base also bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, for Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die, and it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, five hundred shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of testimony, and the, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and all its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the laver and its base. 
You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout all your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacta, and anica, and galbanum, and pure frankincense with these sweet spices. There shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine. And put some of it before the testimony of the tabernacle of meeting, where I will meet with you, it shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves, according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it, to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we are now accustomed to, we recognize that our ability to understand these things, let alone to see Christ in them, is utterly uh, hopeless apart from your good hand upon us, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the work of illumination. We pray, Lord, that you might grant it, that this word which you have promised will be fruitful, which you have promised will be of use to your people to instruct us in the way that we should go in order that we might know Christ and put our faith in him more securely, we pray, Lord, that you would grant it even now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last time we considered um, various aspects of our salvation, most of them really, uh, as summarized in the priestly consecration. And um, many of these are repeated in various ways in this one. We dealt with, for instance, the idea of a need to be washed. We dealt with the idea of incense. We dealt with the idea of what goes on with this, um, this anointing oil, this fragrance, and all the rest of those things. We certainly dealt with burnt offerings and the idea of, of wave offerings and all those things, which were aspects of the atonement. But there was one aspect of the atonement that I didn't deal with, and that was ransom, because it wasn't in that chapter, but it is in this chapter. Now notice very carefully that I say aspect of the atonement, rather than perspective on the atonement. Now it may seem to you like a trivial or academic difference, it isn't. Um, There are some who would say that there are uh, multiple differing perspectives on the atonement, As if, uh, I don't know, we look at the work of Christ, here it is, and I go up to it and I see this. And you go up to it and you see something entirely different and we're both right. And friends, that's completely wrong. That is not the way it works. There is only one orthodox understanding of the atonement which contains within itself multiple true elements. And those elements are all captured for us in the ceremonial law. In fact, probably just for the purpose that we don't miss them uh, as they're then all to be found in the cross of Christ. And, uh, and everyone who looks rightly at Scripture will find those things. So there are multiple elements or aspects of the atonement 
um, but only in that sense one true perspective. All right, so very clearly on that, we're talking about these elements or aspects. And the one we didn't cover, as I say, is ransom. And, and really, if you want to know what this sermon is about, it is about ransom. And really, it's just about to help us to understand that one verse that I read in Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 20, 28, which was that the Lord Jesus said he gave his life a ransom for many. Now, if we didn't have this in other texts in the Old Testament, we really wouldn't understand what he was talking about. Now, the, the Hebrew word that we're dealing with in, in our text in Exodus 30 is a word kofer. Uh, it's the same root from which we get the, the, the term Yom Kippur, which is the Jewish Day of Atonement. So there you are. You have some idea that it has to do with the atonement. But the basic idea of kofer is, in fact, cover. It's a rare, if perhaps somewhat very uh, distant and, and uh, roundabout kind of uh, connection with our word to cover. And in terms of money, the idea of, is of a payment that will cover over some fault or trespass. Does that make sense? Now, that's important because when we think of ransom, what comes to your mind? Children, what comes to your mind? Ransom. A pirate or a kidnapper, right? And they demand, they take someone and they demand some sort of ransom. Um, and, and in exchange, they give back the person. Well, that's not utterly alien. There are parts of scripture that deal with that, but it is not what we're talking about here in this specific idea of ransom that is taken up in Christ's atonement. All right, it's something different. Uh, rather, it's a sense of someone who maybe has already killed somebody trying to pay the price for his sin. And so in Numbers 35, 31, moreover, you shall take no ransom, no kofer, for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but shall surely be put to death. The Bible has to prohibit it, because otherwise that's, that would be the way that things were handled. Whoops, I killed somebody, and now I will pay money in order to be free from having to be myself killed or else put in prison or something like that. Um, now, let me say, it remains in various parts of Asia, it remains precisely like that to this day. All right? Um, and uh, so, for instance, you can look online and see none other than Admiral McRaven, who is the head of the um, Special Operations Command not so long ago, with a goat, taking a goat to some villagers to a particular house in Afghanistan because, in a case of mis mistaken identity, um, someone had died that should not have, and he was providing the kofer. He was providing the ransom price for that wrongful death. And in the Western world, we have that in the civil courts. There are cases in which someone who should have done something to save someone um, didn't other, or otherwise resulted in someone's wrongful death. They may be cleared in the criminal court, but yet they are liable in the civil court for some kind of payment to the family. And in America, sometimes that's extremely uh, a high price um, to be paid. And if you don't pay that price, you may yet end up going to prison. Well, that is essentially the whole idea of a kofer in biblical terms. You're not paying a kidnapper to get back someone. It's rather you have sinned and trespassed, and now you need to pay in order to cover it. That's the idea of a ransom. Now, as I say, that's the basic idea behind this. Um, uh, it, it seems both in terms of whenever there's a, a, a census to be taken, but uh, it's regularized in an annual ransom that all the adult males in Israel had to pay as instituted by our text. 
Now, our point in this sermon is to get us to appreciate that particular aspect of Christ's work that we would not otherwise probably appreciate. And I, I have to say that as in the, the history of theology that people have fought against the, the biblical doctrine of the atonement, the thing that most offends them is what we call the penal substitution, which is that Christ took upon himself the wrath of God that was due our sin. And what we have, therefore, we're not as insistent upon is something that pretty much everyone in various ways agree that there is somehow a ransom involved. And I'm going to later mention a false ransom theory of the atonement to discuss. But the reality is that the average evangelical doesn't think much about ransom. And that's the point of this sermon. The text, or the title type, very simple, ransom. Right? And there are three points. Payment. Second, required of every man. Third, to avoid the plague. And if you think that's a simple sermon, you've got it. It's a very, very simple sermon, merely to point out that very thing. Payment required of every man to avoid the plague. Okay, so let's consider this payment and the background of it because we've already been there in Exodus. We've already dealt with the idea of a certain payment or redemption. Because back in Exodus thirteen eleven, this is what it said. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have. The males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. It doesn't at that moment exactly explain how. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? You shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it shall come to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And so there's the idea that really it should have been them, but there was the Passover and the, lamb, the, the blood of the Passover lamb was put over the, the doorpost and therefore the, the avenging angel, the angel of, of God's wrath, may have been Christ himself, passed over when he saw this blood on these things. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't a sense in which they really should have been there. And therefore, the firstborn then had to be redeemed. Some sort of payment had to be given uh, instead of the death of your own firstborn. And, and let me say, why should it have just been the firstborn? What makes the firstborn any more guilty before God than, than the second or the thirdborn? Well, I would say that the fact that the deadly plague in Egypt was only upon the firstborn was just the mercy of God so that the entire nation was not destroyed. Right? It, it could have well have been the rest of them. And so John O. Mackay rightly observes that there's a larger sense in which everyone requires a ransom, in which everyone is certainly guilty before God, and we know that to be the case. We understand that to be our debt of sin. It's not just the firstborn. Um, for those who have more than one children, we know that's the case, that in fact they are all guilty of sin. They're born dead in their sins and trespasses, so it says. 
because of original sin. We're born with that, and we have that already. Imagine that being a baby, being born with a debt, already a debt that you cannot pay. It doesn't matter what you would do your entire life. We, we sometimes um, point out the rising student debt um, that we, and the, the, the weight upon students leaving with a lot of debt, and that's true. But how much more, even the smallest baby, already beginning with a debt they cannot possibly pay. And then to add to it day by day and year by year more and more of their own sins, impossible to pay. Well, that's why, of course, and there needed to be in the ceremonial law some uh, addressing of this issue and a continual reminder for them. And let me say, really, really important, the memorial aspects of the ceremonial law. Because none of us does, does anybody any good unless these spiritual realities are not in some way brought home in a continual way. And so, very simply, every year, they had a reminder. Oh, yes, uh, we, we all have to pay this ransom, ransom, that there be no plague. So when you take the census, in verse 12, you take the census of the children of Israel for the number, every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord, and notice how that is. So it's not a payment to the church. It's not a payment to the priest. It's a, ra- a ransom giving to the Lord. When you number them, that there may, may be no plague among them when you number them. Okay. So there's a payment, as I say. And it is also, as I say, required of every man. It says, this is what every one among you who is numbered shall give, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, uh, shekel is 20 geras, a half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Now, the, the amount is in various ways interesting. It's not too much and it's not too little. All right? It is something that pretty much everyone could afford, which is important because it's going to be required of everyone. But it's enough so that it's going to be respected. All right? It's not just a complete pittance, but uh, of, of some kind, uh, not to impoverish anyone but it's something valuable to be given so that we might be reminded of the value of our own souls. And friends, how much could we in our time learn about that? Um, I'm often very saddened by, uh, in dealing with people and interacting with them, how little they care about their souls, how little they value them. Uh, they give no thought at all to them. And when you mention them, it's, it's as if a trivial thing because God and judgment and their own souls are not at all in their thought. Well, anyways, um, they give this half of a shekel. And as I say, everyone including, uh, included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. Interestingly, in verse 15, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. Not more, not less. Because it's a universality of the requirement. You know, we have an income tax that is very proportional. And so if someone is very wealthy, someone has a very high-paying job, they give proportionally more. And if someone has less, then they give proportionally less. And that is true of the tithe. Among God's people from all time, there's an idea that we give a certain percent. The the basic uh, foundational idea is that we give a tenth. That's what we call a tithe. And, of course, that tithe is going to be vastly more for the wealthy than it is going to be for the poor. But yet we all give a percentage. But here's a very different idea in which we all have to give precisely the same. Well, why is that? Well, because our souls are of equal worth before God. We are all made in the image 
of eternal God, and therefore our souls are all likewise worthy and of, of, of great value. Notice in Psalm 49, verse 6, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can and by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. Right? A very, very powerful thing in, in Psalm 49. I'm reminded that when anyone says that the, the, our ideas of uh, sin and judgment and salvation are not to be found in the Old Testament, it's, it's such a lie. It's to be found everywhere. And this principle is extremely important. All right? There is no way that we can pay a price that's going to save someone else. And that includes the wealthy, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches. Because it is of their, their normal situation in life that their money can pretty much buy anything that they want. You're, you're reminded of that as you, you travel around places. If, if it's an inconvenience for you to have to wait around in, uh, for it, for, to get in an airplane, you can buy your way out of that line. Right? And if it's an inconvenience to squeeze your way in between you know, various people in the middle of a tiny aisle, you can buy your way out of that situation by being in first class. All it takes is money. And so it is with almost everything in life. All it takes is money. But this is an exception to that. We all stand alike before God as having eternal souls, demanding a ransom, and the ransom is something that we cannot pay. It's required of every man. And that's indeed um, the concept, isn't it, of, of that beautiful uh, idea, again, speaking of the rich and the, the rich farmer. Um, as he tears down his barns to build bigger because of the increase of his wealth. And Jesus says what about him? Fool. Fool. Because what, what, what is he going to do when his soul is required of him. And that means what is he going to pay to redeem his soul? He has nothing actually in his hands to pay that price. Well, that brings us to our third point. There is a payment required of every man in order, thirdly, to avoid the plague. As I, again, going back to verse 12, when you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Because that was the case physically in the promised land. All right? Now, consider soon enough the plague that was, is going to come upon them in the uh, golden calf incident. If you haven't already read it, soon enough you'll come upon it. That they sin and God sends a plague and it kills a lot of them. And that plague is only stayed by another type of Christ, which is, of course, the bronze serpent being held aloft. But it's not the only plague that came. There's another plague that comes actually in the time of David. Do you remember that one? And, and why was that? Well, he numbered the people, didn't he? He, take it, he took a census of all the people against even the better judgment of his, his wicked commander-in-chief. That's a bad sign. If, you're, if Joab says, hey, I don't know if this is a good idea, it's probably a bad idea. And they take this, this census. Satan, no doubt, stirred him up to do it. And, and this instruction is not followed. And so there's a plague upon the land. Right? There's a plague upon the land. But it points to spiritual reality. All right? The idea of, of paying this, 
this uh, ransom to God, it points to the spiritual reality. And Job saw it. Now, speaking of, we can look at in the Psalms, we can look in Job and, and see the same thing. Job thirty three nineteen, Man is also chastened with pain on his bed. And with a strong pain in many of his bones, so that his life abhors bread and his soul succulent food, his flesh wastes away from sight. He knows this, he's experienced it, or Job has, and his bones stick out from which were not seen. Yes, his soul draws near the pit and his life to the executioners. If there is a messenger for him, a mediator, who's that? Who's a mediator? one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness. Then he is gracious to him and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. What a beautiful thought. And all the more in the, in the comparative darkness of the Old Testament as we, we come to such a verse as, as Job comes to such an understanding. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray to God and he will delight in him and see his face with joy and restores man to his righteousness. And friends, all I want to say, if you want to know what this sermon is about, is what Job was hoping for has come true. You have it. We have access to this mediator. We have access to this ransom. And we can say with him, I have found a ransom. I have found a ransom. For my soul, even as we ourselves are drawn near to the end of our days, to death itself, to to judgment, to come. And we can say we found a ransom. And beloved, that is exactly the way we should feel about it, perpetually. Now, yes, but perpetually, we should feel that same way. Your flesh, young like a child's, return to the days of your youth, delighting in God, seeing his face with joy and restoring man to his righteousness. Now, that, that is a twofold thing. It's pointing, yes, forward to Job, looking forward to the time that he'll see his Savior face to face, that he'll see God face to face in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, his mediator, his ransom. But it also points even then, if only this were the case for him who was so suffering and understood um, the reality that he was somehow not, things were not as they should be, looking and desiring for there to be such a ransom. Oh, beloved, we have that in Christ. And if you're not excited about it, if you're not joyful, if you're not, um, I, I, there, there is something wrong with our subjective experience then of, of these things. Because, friends, I, I don't know, if anyone has ever been in debt, I won't ask for a show of hands, but what, a, what an amazing thing to be free of it. All right? And it's not something you ever want to return to. And you, re- you rejoice. You rejoice to be free of that. And I wonder if we really understand the depth of, that, of, that, of, the, of the debt that we owed the Lord. Well, the whole point of this is precisely that it would be a memorial, right? So God's people would not forget uh, that they owe their, that everything they have, they owe their very souls, and, and there is a ransom that must be paid. In verse 16, you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Right? A memorial. Imagine again the idea of, okay, everyone, you're going to have to make atonement for yourselves. And year by year, you make this atonement for yourselves. 
And very clearly, if you understand anything of the law of God, you would understand that what you're doing is clearly not sufficient. Clearly, what you're, not, what you're doing is not going to, to really work in the end. And the whole point is, again, to bring us to Christ. I can, uh, we, we spoke of, of Matthew chapter 20, but I think of another parable. You know the parable of the two debtors, in which they both owe something very significant. One is vastly more than the other, but they both owe more than what they can pay. And they come to the, the Lord, and, and, he, and they just ask to be forgiven. And, um, and he, he frankly forgives them. But we know then that, um, of course, there is um, a misunderstanding as to the way then they should ask other people. But the idea that the Lord would forgive us a debt that we cannot owe is something that we should be perpetually reminded of. And that it wasn't something that was just written off the books. Now, that's the one thing that, of course, is missing from that parable is, is, is we might think that it might, it, we can just wipe that off, that God just strikes that off the books and, and it's just gone at the, the whip of a pen. We know it's not true, but it was done at infinite, Christ, uh, infinite cost in Christ. Now, I mentioned the ransom theory of the atonement. I, I want us to understand that the, the orthodox theory of the atonement um, contains an centerpiece, the penal substitutionary atonement, and has all these other aspects as included or, or um, elements of these things that are all seen in the ceremonial law, certainly including the ransom that was paid to God on our behalf. Christ paid it for us. The ransom theory of the atonement is something very different, and that's the idea that Christ paid a ransom to the devil, and that's a very wrong idea. Uh, as if the devil had the, the real claim on our souls and Christ had to go rescue us by paying to him some sort of ransom. Now that's um, quite foolish. Um, I would say that an element of that is actually seen in C.S. Lewis's atonement theology depicted in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, as the, the witch has some claim upon, upon the boy and, and some ransom is then paid uh, to her. Well, the devil is just a sinful creature who himself will soon enough face eternal judgment. And, and, and hell and judgment are God's hell and judgment. And so if there's any payment to be made, of course, it must be made to God. And let me just say then as my, my last thing on this, that you know an orthodox theory of the atonement because it's all, all the action has to do with God and not with man or any creature. If the, the, the action in, the business end of the atonement doctrine has to do with something in us, it's false. If it has to do with something in the devil, it's false. The real doctrine of the atonement has to do with action happening uh, with regard to God himself, right? That the payment is being made to him, that the wrath of God is falling on Christ, and therefore is, there is a satisfaction. The, the, the atonement is being made um, and it is within the Godhead, actually, a transaction between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Well, as I say, it's a simple um, sermon having to do with ransom, the three points of payment required of every man to avoid the plague. What do we do with this? What are the applications? Pretty simply, first of all, let Christ pay your ransom. Now, if he says in Matthew, and he says in Mark 10, 45, the same, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
how foolish would we be to let that go? Here, Job is looking at the forward to the vague idea that he has in the, the proto-evangelion and the little bit of revelation that he had that there would be such a mediator. He's looking forward to that. We have the luxury of knowing all about this mediator and all about his ransom. And he says, I'm going to lay down my life as a ransom for many. And he did it. He didn't, and we not, we not even have to have exercise the kind of faith that they would have at that time when that verse was spoken. It already happened. He rose again the third day, so we know that it was accepted. And all we have to do is believe. Friends, it's a gift that is being handed to us. And all we have to do is receive it in faith. Let Christ pay your ransom. I say that only because I still encounter people all the time who really somewhere deep inside feel like they need to pay for their sins. They need to atone for something. Friends, receive the ransom that Christ has given and and done on your behalf. Um, Receive it. Let Christ pay for it. Secondly, let's consider the Lord's Prayer. This has application in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verse 9, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, is, uh, are we speaking in material terms, in monetary terms, or spiritual terms? Well, clearly the emphasis is on spiritual terms because we're speaking to God, our Father, to forgive us our debts. And again, that is in terms of our sins. We have sinned against the living God. We are indebted to him, and day by day we ask forgiveness of that debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Because that's the crucial connection, you see. It's not that we earn our salvation by forgiving others. Okay, that's some other false religion. It's rather that as we ourselves experience the complete forgiveness that that the Lord gives of a debt that we cannot possibly repay. And remember, the, the weight of sin towards God is vastly more than it is between you and I, all right, or any human being. All right? He is God, and we owe him, uh, to, we owe that we love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We actually don't owe that to one another. We only owe them a level by which we love ourselves. All right? the, 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 the standard of love, the standard of obedience, and standard of perfection given to God is vastly greater. And his honor and his glory are so much greater. And his authority over so much greater. All these things compound the duty that we have before God. And therefore make every little sin towards him that much worse. Much worse than between each other. And so if God can so easily and daily forgive us. And does he do that? Raise your hand if you have managed to go a day without sinning at all. Okay then you are experiencing day by day the amazing forbearance and forgiveness of God. And so how could it possibly be that one of us every couple months, maybe here in this church, says something dumb and offends somebody, and we can't find it in our hearts to forgive? We hold this grudge forever? What's wrong with us? God forgives us much more than that day by day. And that is precisely the point. Because what does it go on? What does is, what is the Lord's prayer move on? What is it actually just a context for? The next section. Do you know what it is? 
For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Right? This is not a trivial matter in the sight of our Lord. He would not have his Christian people to live in, in holding grudges and refusing forgiveness. He demands that we forgive as freely as he himself forgives. It's only right, it's only natural if we experience that freeness and, and wonderful generosity of forgiveness that he gives us. Then surely we must be willing to give it on far lighter matters one to another. Again, that's the point of, the, of, of that parable of the rich man and his debtors and that the craziness of, of that man going after and, and, and putting his hands around his neck and, and, and strangling him and saying, give me what you owe, and it's some tiny little amount when he himself has just been forgiven a hundred times that. We should live as the Lord's Prayer prays for us to forgive one another these debts that we owe. Thirdly and finally, um, what, do we, what do we say in the point that it gives us memorial? That which we owe for our souls, we give, yes, to God, and, but what is it used for in our text? The upkeep of the tabernacle, right? And so there is applicability in our giving to the church. It's right because we receive spiritual goods and services from the church. In fact, as Paul mentions um, in in one of his epistles, he's writing to this um, slave owner, and, and uh, this man was his property, Philemon, and he says, I don't mention that you owe me your own soul. Right? What he's saying is, I understand that this man is worth some money to you. I, I want you to forgive it for my sake, um, and I'm going to point out in, a, in, a, in an offhanded way the fact that, that you are alive in eternity, humanly speaking, because I preach the gospel to you. And therefore, he says, for the good of the church, please forgive this material thing and give it for the common good. Well, the principle is that there is a relationship between material goods and spiritual benefit. God sets up a church on this earth, and you and your children, and you and your friends and your neighbors and your family members receive eternal life spiritually from the work of the church. You can give back materially. It's not much. It'll never repay the debt. But God is pleased as we give our tithes and our offerings towards the upkeep of a church. And if that upkeep is even more than it's ever been before, so be it. May the Lord, I know he's no one's debtor. And I'm quite sure that we'll find ourselves to also be spiritually wealthy as God continues to outgive us in every way. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word and for Christ, who was that longed for redemption, that longed for mediator who would pay the ransom that we could not possibly pay. And how can we express our thanks for him? How we pray, Lord, simply that we would focus on being thankful and joyful. And that, Lord, when we are tempted to despair, when we are tempted to complain, and particularly when we are tempted to hold grudges against one another and to withhold forgiveness for some trivial offense, 
And we know that they're all trivial in comparison to what we owe you. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to remember these things. We walk around of those who have recently been forgiven a debt of hundreds of billions of pounds. Lord, given so freely and so cheerfully, Lord, joyfully, Lord, we know that you're no miser, that you do not begrudge us these things. In fact, day by day, you tell us to come to you for more forgiveness as day by day we yet sin against you. And so, Lord, we pray that this, this attitude of unlimited generosity and of grace being extended would permeate our church in this new year in both spiritual and material ways. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.